0: Good to see you, the intrepid few, on this uh, first Sunday of Christmas. The few, the proud, not the Marines, but anyway. Hope that you had a blessed Christmas gathering uh, and celebration wherever you were. We felt like we were able to keep Christmas well this year, and we were glad, gladdened by that. I don't know what uh, your family's Christmas traditions are around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We have always joked as a family that our Christmas tradition is church, especially for those about six years or so where we did two services on a Christmas Eve, an early one and then a really late one. Felt like really all we could muster was church, right? You do the four o'clock service, go have some dinner, take a nap, wake everybody up to come back to church at 11 o'clock. Get up the next morning and hate your life, right? And that's kind of how Christmas ran for us for many years. Um, but since we didn't do that this year, we felt like we had space in our lives for a new Christmas tradition. So we got up on Christmas morning, not hating our lives, thanks be to God. And after everybody had exchanged gifts and we had you know, opened everything under the tree, had a nice breakfast together, we went to church. We decided, well, since we didn't have two services here, year, we'd go to somebody else's church. So we did. We went to another church on Christmas morning, and we loved it. We loved it. It was great. And I won't speak for my whole family. I can only speak for myself. But I loved it because I love to worship. And I love the church. Warts, bumps, and all, I love the church. And I love being with the church in all of her many different expressions. This morning in our scriptures for the first Sunday of Christmas our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah spoke similarly of a love for the church. The immense love that Christ has for his church as well as the love for her that he desires us as his people to share in as well. So let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 61 starting verse 10 if you have your Bible. But before we can get to understanding what this passage has to say about this relationship of love between God and his people, we have to ask a few questions of the text. The first one is this. In this text, who is speaking? Who is speaking? See, in the book of Isaiah, the, the voice kind of bounces around. I mean, you have the voice of Isaiah kind of narrating some of the action passages. Then you also have Isaiah speaking in the first person as he is called upon to deliver some of the the messages, the the prophetic words from God. Then you also have the voice of God oftentimes. And then here toward the latter part of the book, you also have the voice of the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, the Christ. So we have to ask, so which voice is this? Because that helps us understand the passage much better. And from what's being said in this particular passage, it's clear that these are the words of the Messiah, the Christ. This isn't Isaiah, this isn't even the Lord God, this is his Christ, his anointed one, speaking. I mean, we see that at the very beginning of the chapter, one of the classic uh, servant songs. But the image of a husband is also used throughout the prophets as an image to convey the relationship between God and His covenant people, and then this very specific image of the bridegroom is taken up in the Gospels and in the New Testament uh, by Jesus Himself to articulate the, the relationship between Jesus and His church, the Christ and His people. Of course, in Isaiah's original context, we understand that the Lord's anointed Christ is speaking to the people of Judah to whom Isaiah was sent. But as we fast forward into the New Testament, remember what we hear Jesus say. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, right, but to fulfill it. To fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And therefore, far from abolishing what Isaiah says here to Judah, Jesus says, he is the fulfillment of it. Meaning that after Jesus, we can't just read this and look for God speaking these words to his specific Old Testament people in Israel rather fulfilled in Christ these words are actually most accurately applied to the people whom Christ would establish his covenant people encompassing both Jews and Greeks slaves free male female etc so that's how we need to read and understand these words as Jesus ultimately speaking about and to us his people the church And with that understanding in mind, we can ask the next important question in the text. What does he say? What does he have to say? Well, first, he actually speaks about himself. Again, remember in the original context, this is the Christ speaking, really, for the first time about his work and what he has come to accomplish. And that helps us understand, again, the way Jesus fulfills rather than wipes out these words. He says, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. This is Christ speaking in poetic terms about the salvation and the work that he would come to accomplish. He would come as a human being, yet clothed not only in flesh, clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, as our beloved Carol reminds us, but also still clothed in perfect in perfection, the very righteousness of God. Becoming human, he wears salvation. As St. Anselm of Canterbury would remind us, only God was capable of saving humanity because only he is without the touch and taint of the sin and brokenness of our fallen world. Yet only a human being could come to fully understand and comprehend and heal and atone for that brokenness. And so while Christ comes among us fully and completely God, He also becomes fully and completely man in order to be the perfect man clothed in the righteousness of God. And by His righteousness, He brings righteousness to light. Jesus plants the seeds of righteousness within human hearts. By his own glory, he plants the seed of glory within men and women. It's a beautiful image. We understand from the New Testament that Jesus places his own spirit within the hearts of those that come to him in faith so that we too might sprout up as righteous holy, set apart men and women to the glory of God. And so he goes on. The Messiah declares, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. This is Jesus' proclamation about his people. The people of God here in Isaiah, understood as Zion, the holy city, Jerusalem, but understand, understood through the lens and teaching of Jesus in the New Testament to be his church, the people of God birthed from his new covenant work. Christ declares that for the sake of his chosen people, he's at work and won't stop working. He will not shut up until it is done. He will see his work through to the end. His desire is for the glory of the church to be evident. Evident, a shining beacon of light to all the nations. He's promised to continue his work of salvation, righteousness, transformation in and through his church so that the church might show his glory to the world. Few weeks ago in our Advent readings, we saw how Jesus answered John the Baptist's question. Remember how John sent his disciples to Jesus to say, Are you the one that is to come, or are we supposed to be waiting for another? And what did Jesus respond? He says, Go back to John and tell him what you've seen. Right? The eyes of the blind are open, the lame walk, the, the deaf hear, and salvation's good news is preached to the poor, right? In other words, he was saying, The work that I'm doing speaks for itself. But you also might recall what I said as we were talking about that passage is that right before it, not only was Jesus doing those works, but he had actually just sent out his 12 apostles to go and do the exact same things. And they came back elated because they saw demons cast out and they saw the blind receiving sight, etc., Jesus sending out his apostles and seeing them do the very work why do we expect that to stop brothers and sisters why do we expect that God would stop doing his work believe me I am not pointing fingers here whenever I experience answers to prayer or or witness the work of healing and what Jesus is doing in my own life or others around me it still surprises me and then I sort of chide myself I'm like "What?" Why should this surprise me? I, of all people, should think that this is like the way it should go, right? And yet it still surprises me. But Jesus promised that he would continue to do his work, even greater work, he said, in and through his people, the church. So why are we surprised when he does it? Why are we not more expectant, more eager, more serious to see him do his work in our midst, in our day, in our lives, in our church. Again, the Lord goes on, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 62 now, he says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Of course, again, Isaiah and the kingdom of Judah at this time would have understood this as an an overturning, a, a reversal, a promised reversal of fortunes after the time of their overthrow and exile being overthrown by the Babylonians and carried off into exile uh, would have been a tremendous, widespread, shaming event. The people of God would have felt shame at what they had lost and why they had lost it. And so here Isaiah is prophesying the overturning of that shame, taking away the reproachful names and bestowing a new name of blessing. But if we understand this to be also and ultimately the work of Jesus to his church, it takes on a whole new dimension that is most applicable to us. In the scriptures, to name something was was highly significant. Names were given to encapsulate key events or key places or key people of great import for the story of God's interaction with his people and his world. So to declare that God himself will give a name implies both God's perfect understanding and his sovereignty over his people, as well as his stating of the significance which his people play in his overall plan for the world. What the scripture is offering us is that the one who created us and knows us Perfectly and intimately, quite literally better than we know ourselves, will give us a name as He sees us in His perfect knowledge and perfect love for us. A lot of us have been given names of various kinds over the years, right? Oh, she's the pretty one. He's the smart one. He's a surly one, Matt. She's so stubborn. She's so strong. Or we've been identified by all sorts of things. Our birth order, our career path, our ethnicity, our economic status. We take those names in and they do begin to have a sort of mastery over us, don't they? Some of those names become self-fulfilling prophecies. Some become the demons we find ourselves constantly fighting against. Others, the way we wish to portray ourselves to the world's perception. But when the names by which we identify ourselves are bestowed upon us by our fallen circumstances or or by the broken families or colleagues or bestowed upon us uh, by ourselves out of our own broken and too often twisted desires, they become false names. They become shameful names oftentimes. And trying to live into them leads us down a false and all too often destructive path. But the inherent promise of this text is that Jesus longs to give us a new name, a proper name, not formed out of expectations of us or or deceptive desires within us or for us, But Jesus promises to bestow upon us a true name based on his true and perfect knowledge of us and his desire for us. He knows how we were formed. He sees things within us that oftentimes we ourselves don't even see. He has the ability to call forth from us the best in a way that no one else can or ever will because he sees us and knows us and loves us perfectly. If you find yourself struggling with the names that have come to identify you, I want to encourage you, find time. Find time to sit with Jesus and ask him to, to take those names and especially to take the shame, any shame you may have associated with those names and you take it from you. And then ask him, ask him to give you a new name. Lord, name what you see in me. A new way of identifying and seeing myself the way you see me. The way you long for me to be seen. Well, finally, latter part of our passage, we do finally see this word about believers' relationship to the church and the Lord's relationship to believers through his church. The Lord continues in 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Friends, we were made for loving God, but also for loving his church. We were made for loving God through his church. Just as a young man loves his young bride, so are the people of God to love the church. Because that's the same way the Lord himself regards his church. People of God, would that we understood the depths of love that the Lord has for each of us how much he absolutely adores each and every one of you, his people. Jesus and our Heavenly Father love and adore the church and have poured out their love upon her through the blessed Holy Spirit. And so, as challenging as a thought as it sometimes may be, we are meant to love and adore and cherish the church. Believe me, I know better than most about all the ways the church can get ugly and let you down and even hurt you. Nevertheless, she is also a beautiful, spotless bride in the sight of the Lord. And so she is to be a beautiful, spotless bride to us, his people. Now, in this day and age where the consumer mindset has crept in, even to the rank and file of the church... It's become almost expected that I should choose and commit to a church based on how I believe it can meet my needs, how it can meet my desires, even my tastes, you know, convenient worship times, good education programs for me, for my kids, the kind of music I like, the kind of preaching I like that's you know, not too meddlesome, not too much of the time. I have to say, though, that what's in it for me mentality does not seem to reflect the kind of adoring love that Isaiah speaks of here. As we were driving up to get our Christmas tree last week, I was reminiscing about some friends of ours, and the way they said as kids, they always selected their Christmas tree. It was their parents' tradition that they would just drive to the lot and just grab the first tree that they saw. Wouldn't evaluate it against any other tree, wouldn't, you know, look for this or that in it. They would just grab a tree and take it home, and open it up, and they would say, we're going to love this tree, whatever it's like, because it's the love that makes it a Christmas tree. They were hippies, it is true. But joking aside, that is the kind of attitude that the people of God ought to have toward the church. I'm going to commit to this community of faith, regardless of how it looks, how it meets my needs or doesn't, regardless of how challenging it is, or how challenging I find the people in it. I'm going to love it because it is the love that makes it a church. People of God, unless the leadership of the church is morally corrupted, or the preaching is heretical, or the worship departs from biblically formed faith and practice, don't be quick to reject a local body of believers. For one thing, you'll never find the perfect church. I had a friend who always used to say, if you ever do find the perfect church, please don't go there. Because the minute you get there, you've just made it imperfect. (laughs) This side of the final restoration of all things, the church will struggle. We muddle through. At times, we feel like we're barely making it. Local churches will disappoint you. They will even hurt you. But in the eyes of the Lord, the church is precious and cherished and like a beautiful pure, spotless bride. Because that's how he sees you, despite all of what you bring to the table. People of God, hear and rejoice in the love of Christ for you. He, the one who is clothed in eternal splendor, was clothed in humanity in order to clothe you in his righteousness and plant the seed of his spirit within you. He offers to call you by a new name, breaking the power of those false, shaming names that you've taken on. To name you and restore to you the dignity with which he created you. And he longs for you to revel in his love for you and for you to participate in his love for his bride, the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace. Give us grace to respond. In places where we need still to be clothed in your righteousness. In places where we need to renounce the false names that we've taken on or even adopted for ourselves. in the places where we have failed at loving you and failed at loving your people give us the grace to return to you once again and ask for grace that we would be called beautiful that we would be called married to you Our Lord, your pure spotless bride, only you can do this by the power of your spirit, Lord. And so send it upon your people again, we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.